This is the Educational Triage Podcast. Welcome. We invite you to come along with us on an exploration of interviews, issues, and other exciting and relevant topics in education, especially alternative education. They say alternative education is a laboratory for mainstream education. Why? Well, join us every week and listen in as Christy Goodell, Hello. Philip Summers, Aloha. and I, Tony Hunt, jump in feet first to discuss issues that may affect our classes, students, communities, as well as our teaching. Please subscribe if you enjoy and find relevance in what you experience here. And if you haven't left a quick review, please do. We appreciate your candor and insights so we can improve as we move forward. Now, let's see what's on board today. And welcome back to Educational Triage. And this week, we are going to have a discussion about funding and equity in funding because a lot of the private programs, a lot of the other programs that aren't necessarily in the regular mainstream uh, programs or the schools do not receive the kinds of monies that they really should be receiving and not through fault of their own. But uh, it, it seems, and as we heard in our cast two weeks ago with Liz Quayle and Annie Marges, that we really should be getting far more resources in our alternative education programs and schools than we actually do, maybe one and a half percent um, like we do for special ed. But I have a bit of an expert here and I have Roxanne with me. <laughs> Thank you. So, it's very good to be here with you, Tony. Oh, it's, it's wonderful to have you. And I really am grateful that you agreed to do this with me. Um, Roxanne Wilson runs a program in a, in a rural community in Oregon and the, and she and I were talking and she brought up in a couple of meetings about um, how there were some issues with the ESSA funds and over COVID and the fact that she falls into a weird little spot where she's a private program that cannot receive public funds, but she's also funded publicly. But since she's a private school, <laughs> Am I saying that right or did yeah. I confuse myself? Okay. No, that's pretty, it's pretty, yeah, it's pretty close. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So um, I thought that we would begin with uh, what, please describe what your program is. And then we kind of know and take us through how the funding happens yeah. through um, the funding that you get. And then what would equitable funding look like for your school? Because you're your students are more, they, they have a higher need for resources than a lot of the regular mainstream, let's call them middle-class normed students, correct? Right. Mm -hmm. Okay. Which is the case with most alternative programs. Right. And one so, way or another. So, okay. So let's hear about your school and then what, what kind of funding you do receive and then what it would take for you to feel whole with equitable funding. Okay. Let's just begin with that. Yeah. Um, so first of all, we 
uh, we are, um, our parent company is a nonprofit organization um, headquartered in McMinnville, Oregon. And then we own and operate a therapeutic focus virtual um, alternative school and program in Dayton, rural Dayton, Oregon. And um, we specifically serve students who are not able to succeed in the traditional environment um, because of the barriers of the um, mental health challenges they experience. And so, so and that focus. includes um, anxiety, depression, even uh, up to and including suicidality. Okay. Okay. So that tends to be the focus of where your program comes from. So you, are you right. able to provide them with different mental health services and? Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yes, we, we, um, we have their, um, what do you call those? I just had a, my brain just kind of went on left field, but um, the assessments, yes, mental health assessments, <laughs> we have them done with by our psychiatrist, he's the middle, medical director in, um, and then we have our, um, we have our 504 program that we, uh, through Frontline that we use and we work with this, this uh, school district, oh, there you are, to, um, to implement whatever, all, all of what they, all of their, their needs, but we specifically focus on, um, on the mental health needs. Um, but we, we do it in a way that we are, we're supporting the whole person and their family. So we provide peer services for the parents as well. And, um, family stabilization services. We work with Lutheran family services to provide those things. And, um, so we have a lot of partnerships in the community and throughout the state that we, um, we utilize to find the best resources for our families. And how, out of curiosity, how linked in are those families? I mean, are they pretty well clicked in or is it sort of happenstance? Um, we've had, we've had all of the, all of both sides and everything in between. Okay. And so what we, what we have learned is that um, there are different levels of needs for the students and there's different, different levels of needs for the parents and for the families. And um, it really has to be student centered and, um, and focused on individual needs. Mm -hmm. And then we recreate a service plan and um, provide all those. If we don't have the services that they require um, or that they could benefit from, then we reach out to our community and find them for them. Okay. So basically we do a lot of, uh, resource gathering, um, and, uh, you know, walking with our peers hand in hand to go, I mean, not, not really physically holding their hand, but you know, right. we walk with them to go to access services. We will attend meetings, first meetings, if we need to with the families, we will pretty much do whatever they need mm -hmm. to ensure the success of their students and their okay. family together. And then what kind of funding do you receive from the district? From the district. Um, so the far, district. we have only received what is in our contract, uh, which is 80% of the net operating expenditures per student. And that mm -hmm. is only 
what is reported from the general expenditure fund, not any other extra uh, funding. Right, because in Oregon, it's either 80% or the net cost of expenditure for the student in the program, whichever is less, correct? Right. Mm -hmm. And ours, ours will never be less. So they don't even ask us for that anymore because our, I mean, a psychiatry for one hour is $150 at least or 200. Mm -hmm. um, and so like just, just, just the mental health services alone uh, far exceed what we get from the, from the district. Okay. So because if you're going to get Let's say that you had them all in special ed. Would you would you be able to get more more monies for them uh, if they perhaps. were to fall under that? However, the problem with that is that special education, as I'm sure you know, doesn't mm -hmm. necessarily follow the student. This the funding doesn't necessarily fo always follow the student because each district is only. Um, the way I understand, the way I have been told from the district that I work with each and from, um, you know, individuals that I have spoken to from ODEs that, um, that the, there's only, they only get a certain percentage uh, for the district for, for special education services based on IEPs. And it don't, they don't cover anything on a 504 plan, which is what's usually used for mental health uh, mm -hmm. challenges. Um, they don't, special education doesn't even apply to mental health challenges on a 504 plan at all. And they only cover a certain amount of special education. I mean, needs a percent in each district. And once they reach that cap, everything else is just absorbed into their, their, their budget. And so, um, unfortunately that specific, um, law or policy or whatever it is that that um that creates that stream. funding cycle that funding stream is actually creating um a situation where educate or administrators in in public um school districts are reluctant to put their their students on ieps because then they are required by law to provide services that they're not always compensated for. Mm -hmm. So, um, so I, the problem I think is more systemic than just in the school districts themselves, um, because they have to look out for, you know, how, how well they can pay their educators just like we do. Right. And, and their services, how well they can provide the services for their students. And so they, I, I believe that, you know, most, most educators and administrators want the best, what's best for their students. But if you can't, if you can't pay for the services, then that's not going to help anybody. Exactly. Okay. So if you were to receive equitable funding, if you were to receive funding that was, let's say that allowed you to be comfortable, much like the mainstream schools let's say that they're at a comfortable level. If you receive full funding, would that make it comfortable or would you need more than just what's there? Well, if you think about it like this, so if you take the, um, so every, every need that a student has 
has a cost associated to meeting it, mm -hmm. associated with meeting that need, right? Right. So if you're talking about what you were talking about earlier, the mainstream, normal, middle-class needs, right? Without mm -hmm. the, you know, without the issues that come with poverty or the issues that come with anything else, right? Just the mainstream middle of the road, right? The mm -hmm. median, I guess you would say, or the right. mean, the average, then there's a cost associated to meeting those normal needs, normal needs, mm -hmm. right? Um, average. And, but when you're talking about individuals who are needing to go to an alternative school because they're not able to succeed in the traditional environment with those average needs, right? Mm -hmm. That means they need more things than what's being provided in the traditional school environment. They need more, right? but we get less. Mm -hmm. So, and I, that doesn't seem, I mean, that's kind of the opposite of equitable. You think? Yeah. <laughs> so, and then when you, when you go to the, the, the department of education and, and I am not throwing stones here at all because I, I love them. They have been really, really supportive. When you go to the department of education and you say, okay, why, why am I getting denied for ESSER funds? I mean, I'm only asking for, for funds for five students right now. Right. So why am mm -hmm. I getting denied with these ESSER funds? Well, um, you know, whether it's an amount, amount issue, let's get past that. And, you know, maybe I, maybe the, the amount we asked for was not the amount we were supposed to whatever, because I'm, I'm brand new at that. So, um, but the bottom line was they said that because we were, like you said, we were a private alternative school. We were not eligible to receive public relief funds, but because we were receiving public funds from the district, we were not eligible to receive private relief funds. So there, there were 38, I think, and I, I might be getting the number wrong, but I, I believe there, I believe they said there was like 30 something schools in Oregon that fall into the category that where we were at in this mm -hmm. little, um, you know, basically where we fell through the gap mm -hmm. and Private our students of those 30 something schools, uh, alternative schools in Oregon were the only students who in the whole state who did not benefit from relief funds from COVID. And they were the ones that were most likely suffering the most from the, the effects of COVID. Right. And those are the private contract schools, the ones that right. are private but they contract with the school districts to receive 80%. Yes. So they fall into the same little net that you do. Yes. And they, and they said that like, there's nothing we can do about it because these are federal guidelines. Those are okay. federal guidelines? Or That's are what they, they said, the federal guidelines. Policy? They said that they are following federal guidelines and there's nothing they can do about it. And so I said, okay, so who makes the federal guidelines? who do I need to go to next? And that was not something that was, um, that was not information that was readily available. So, um, you know, to me personally, there's nothing I can do about it is never an appropriate response. Right. Because this is just the way it's done. Not appropriate because no. it's all the, the way it's always been not appropriate. Not appropriate. Mm -hmm. No, 
when there are students suffering and they are often individuals with disabilities and they are being, they are being the, are they are the only students not benefiting from these funds in the whole state? That seems a little discriminatory to me. It's exclusionary. Exclusionary. And whether that's intentional or not, there's nothing I can do about it is not appropriate. Right. Uh, let's, let's talk about what we can do about it because nothing mm-hmm. is not appropriate. Exactly. Exactly. That's why I thought it was important for you to, to come on here and, and speak, because I know that you are presenting on this um, at the national conference in St. Louis next month. Mm-hmm. Um, and you and I had a chat about that. Um, and I kind of like to go through um, for the people who are listening, um, because I know that what you're going to present is probably going to be look a lot different in many ways. And then there's going to be a lot of similarities that are here, too. Um, but let's talk about what sources of funding you do have and that you're able to use for your program, um, because I don't because I don't want people to think that the only thing that you can get are these are the funds from the school district. Well, and... no, for sure. And so that actually is one of one of the questions that I have had um, as as uh, ad- alternative administrators school, of schools and programs, alternative schools and programs. <laughs> how many of us even know what all the funding sources are that are available? And are alternative schools and programs routinely made aware of all the possible funding sources prior to signing contracts with public districts? And if not, shouldn't there be a process in place to make sure administrators in alternative education know their rights and not just their responsibilities? I mean, shouldn't those go hand in hand? Like with a data, re- well, a, almost like a data warehouse that they would need. Yeah. Or a tutorial or mm-hmm. um even a PDF that's sent to you before you sign a contract or right. um, suggestions on how to how to uh, word your contract so that you can get all the funds that are due your students mm-hmm. and use this, the funding to actually help the students they were designed to help. Because if the money is not going, I'll tell you about the extra funding that you can, you know, some of the extra funding that you can get, but if the funding is not following the students and their needs, then what is it following? I mean, and are, are there accountability and transparency measures in place to protect the interests of the students and their families? Did, did anyone receive funding for the students we have been serving in our schools and programs? And if so, where are those funds being spent, if not on those specific students' education and their, and their, their extra needs? Mm-hmm. Where, where are the funds? Where'd they go? Right. If they're and not so, following the students, then what's it following? And so then they become suspect of fraud. Yeah, but and I really don't think that I, I really I'm, I would I would hope and mm-hmm. I and so I'm going to I'm going to think that it's an oversight and, and not intentional or malicious. Um, but I think that educating districts and alternative education administrators um, on exactly what those funding sources are and how the equi- how to distribute those funds equitably for the best interests of the students involved, that really needs to be out there. 
I mean, for us, we are owned and operated by a nonprofit organization. Um, and so we can, we can do grant writing and get some grants. Um, and that's at the mercy. They can say yes, or they can say no. So that's not ever a guaranteed. Fortunately for us, we have had um, some support from the Oregon Community Fund and Ford Family Foundation mm-hmm. um, because of the super important work we do and and the lives we save. But um, not it took me forever to learn how to speak the language of grant writing um, as a grassroots nonprofit to to stop getting no's every time. So mm. in the meantime, who suffers? The students. Right. Well, it seems to me, and maybe this feels as though I'm going off on a, another track, part of me believes that part of a senior year curriculum and one of the requirements for graduation from a regular mainstream high school should be filling out a FAFSA, getting at least two scholarships and learning how to do scholarships or Pell Grants or whatever and doing the best you can so that you don't have to take out these onerous loans as well as, and maybe that's the first quarter and the second quarter of the semester would be based on grant writing. Yeah. And learning how to grant write and write those grants simply because um, there's a lot of grants you can get for personal endeavors. Right. And not only that, but it's a skill that is marketable that people can use. So whether or not somebody's actually going to go out into the cold, cruel world via university or trade or whatever, they still have that skill that's right there. And that is something for their resume that can actually help them. And I think that somebody in a position like yours, um, if you were able to hire somebody who kind of sort of even knew what they were doing, and then you could put your head together with theirs, that would double the fun in trying to get everything together as well. Yes, actually. Yes. So I actually ask them for their input when I do grant writing nowadays. I'm like, so, mm-hmm. you know, how does this, what, what benefits you? And what, what are, you know, what is the biggest, what has had the biggest impacts on your experience? And those are the things that we want to fund specifically mm-hmm. uh, because we want to keep providing the services that work. Uh, the right. services that that honestly save lives and not mm-hmm. just save them but not just we, not just get people to not not just get these kiddos to not want to die anymore but get them to really want to live to ha- to build a life and to build skills that help them deal with with the things that life throw at us to be able to 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 have a life they want to live that they look forward to they start give thinking them, about their future for the first time. Right. Give them a path paved with hope. Yeah. And that's another reason. I, one of the things I also think they should, that they should, and we do teach in high school is, and that's one of the things I'm going to be talking about. And then at the national conference is legislative advocacy mm-hmm. because they feel powerless, just like the rest of us that like it is the way it is, you know, I don't like it either. Nothing I can do. Um, but we're not powerless. No. We've, I've, I've helped actually change laws myself personally. I know it can be done and there, all you have to do is know how to do it. And mm-hmm. first of all, but the first thing is 
I don't know about you, but I didn't even know till I was in my 40s. I'm 48 now. I, I didn't even know till I was in my 40s that a regular citizen could even affect change on a legislative level at all. Nobody ever said anything about that. I'm pretty sure hardly anybody I knew at the time. Well, I mean, I talk about it all the time now, so they're probably all tired of hearing about it. But (laughs) (laughs) but before I didn't know anything like that. They didn't know anything. I didn't know anybody that knew anything about the fact that we could actually do something about it. We're not as powerless as we thought. Exactly. Exactly. If you know what you're saying and if you know how to approach it, then, of course, you're going to have ears. Yeah. I mean, you do have to learn how to speak um, and listen Mm -hmm. diplomatically. I mean, Mm -hmm. and those are those are super important skills for life that people um, they just don't learn a lot. You know, the adulting part of life. Right. Right. So I want to get into that. But first, let's look at your sources of funding. Because yeah. you you have some different sources of funding. Um, you had been telling me about some things that I didn't know about. Yeah. And okay, good, 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 mm-hmm. good, good. And mm-hmm. there's also the Education Commission of the states, and they work on educational policy and they work with the states. And you can find them on the web at ecs.org. So, and you should be able to find the representatives who are working within the Department of Education in your state. Yes. Right there. uh, Our representative um, has been super helpful. Um, You you mentioned her earlier, you had an interview Mm -hmm. with Annie Marges and she has been the most wonderful resource at the Oregon Department of Education. She's always there to help and support and answer questions. She never makes us feel like it's a burden. Um, she's just been an invaluable resource and I'm s- super grateful. <laughs> she seems indefatigable, so. Oh, she's amazing. She yeah, really is. she truly is. Um, okay, so sources of funding. Why don't we go through, let's go with five that we have on our list here. Yeah. And so, cause these are things that I think that people um, who are thinking about creating something that they might actually want to write down. Maybe it's just reinforcement for some people and other people might know. And if you know of other funding force, funding forces, funding sources, um, if you can shoot those into the comments and then we can put those out there too. Yes. Um, so why don't you go through those and begin with delinquent and neglected youth? Well, honestly, Um, before I talked to you, I didn't know any of those resources. So I didn't, well, I knew the McKinney Vento Mm -hmm. resources for homeless youth. Right. Uh, I didn't know anything about the delinquent and neglected youth. And you had two other resources that you mentioned. Mm -hmm. Um, The migrant education. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think I thought there was one other one, but um, that I didn't know anything about those either. And I'm, there's the re-engagement. Re-engagement. Yes, that's what it was. Yes. Mm-hmm. And I, so I had no idea those were going in there. And then you have the special education funds. Right. However, <laughs> here's another crux of the issue. If Even if you have licensed mental health providers, you are not allowed to it is my understanding 
that we are not allowed to count those as special education services, even though they are for extra or special needs, right? Um, and even contributing to significant disabilities, we're not allowed to count them as special education services if we are not specifically designated as a special education school or program. So uh, what do you count those as? We just... Are they just like jelly extra, on, a, on extra toast? Extra expenses. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. Well, well, I did work with... A, I, I did spend... Um, nearly one and a half decades working with the residential treatment center mm -hmm. and our students would go into uh, therapy and they would have therapeutic sessions during the day. And so we made concessions for them, but they did that off campus and then they would walk back between yeah. the house and, and, and the school and take care of things that way. So I'm just wondering, is that sort of the same kind of thing that you have, or do they just go into the, in with the therapist or they they can have um on-site or off-site services depending on what their needs are and if they're matched by what we offer okay um and if they sometimes they even have uh services in their own homes um, mm -hmm. that we facilitate help me help help get them the services and help them get started in those would um, that be along the lines of family coaching and and the family in... stabilization services, okay. okay, those kinds of things. And then we have, you know, we have peer support services for the parents and they get those directly from us. Mm -hmm. uh, we have elder mentoring services. They get the, the students get those from us. We have, um, we teach our students um, peer mentoring. Uh, that's actually a, a, it's actually a credit, a high school credit that they can get for peer mentoring. Um, and they um, learn youth, they learn teen mental health first aid and how to support each other in a safe way and how to get involved, adults involved and safety planning, all those things. And I believe that there may be funding for peer mentoring programs. Oh, that would even be better. <laughs> I remember years ago when I was working as an ESL consultant, we looked into peer mentoring and I was speaking to people from adjoining districts and they were telling me about the funding. They told me about some of the corporations that we could talk, speak with. And some of them were, um, because we were looking at, um, it wasn't Televistazo, Telemundo, or I don't know what the, what the Spanish station is, Univision mm -hmm. or whatever it is. Um, because I get mixed up because I used to live in South America. So, oh, um, okay, we're gonna have to have a kind of a conversation about that at some point because I am <laughs> a culture nerd. Okay. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, but no, there there was peer mentoring, and so it it kind of goes in with. I think it's great that you do that. I also think that if the students are, are receiving health services, if they can put things together and it's a confidential kind of journal or something like that, and they can explain some of the progress and it doesn't have to divulge their specific needs or whatever, that I know that we were able to grant, and I know other programs grant um, health credits. Oh, 
based on post credits. Wow, mm -hmm. that's cool. And you could also possibly do some elective credits based on that as well. So that helps them. So if they're gone for periods of time and they're, let's say that they're in rehab, let's say that they're in um, some sort of a yeah. facility for them to get their lives together, um, that if they can do some diaries, if they can do something and you work with the therapist maybe and them and their families, that you should be able to give them some form of elective credit for that time. So it's not completely time lost. For because sure. They're yes. working we on include their lives. Uh, social emotional learning and, and all of that into, mm -hmm. into our mental health, um, uh, coping skills, soft skills, all of those things into our health curriculum. Perfect. Um, and we also provide elective credits for therapeutic fiction writing. Oh, that's so, awesome. Mm -hmm. That's wonderful. But that could also be an English credit true it can't because it's creative writing mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but it can't be core english but it could still be english credit but yeah that's a hard one to sometimes the the um boundaries between those two things are well there's some workarounds yeah <laughs> okay let's take a look at some of the um services that might be siloed and non-cooperative services Oh. So mm -hmm. that they don't have complete access to. So what would those be? Well, the one thing that I have been advocating for, I, so much so that I'm sure people are really tired of hearing my voice on the issue, is the silo that is the biggest silo between the Oregon Department of Education and the Oregon Health Authority. Mm -hmm. um, because many, many uh, families are have private insurance and the um, services provided for families who have um, Medicaid are extensive, but the, the services provided to families that have private insurances who are in that weird space where they make too much money to get Medicaid, but they don't make enough to pay any, any deductibles. Mm -hmm. Their students suffer and everybody's just like, well, you know, we have this, contract with the CCO and they don't really like us to spend our resources helping the other people that don't have Medicaid. So we need to be focused on this contract. And I'm like, I know I think you need to be focused on the people right? <laughs> and think. the needs of our community, but that's mm -hmm. just me. I've always been a dreamer, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I do know that I have really, I know that finally this year they put together the, the state level systems of care because the county level systems of care, I'm just not even going to go there, but the state level of systems of care, I, it, it does have a lot of potential to, to fill in those gaps and, and kind of mend these siloed systems, especially, um, even when I talk to them, though, they're talking about, they're like, well, we're just talking about the Oregon Health Authority inside the whole Oregon Health Authority. And I'm like, okay, that's great. But let's talk about a little bit. How are we going to meld this together with the Department of Education and the Oregon Health Authority? Because that's where the most, the, most of the, the students spend all their day. Why would we not? Right. And that would, yeah, because why that pretty much fix most things? <laughs> it would funding. help. Yeah. It would, it would, it would very much help. 
And then, um, because you're talking about mental health and addictive services. Well, right. But even if you talk about things for autism, you talk about services, mm-hmm. um, DHS is in, in, in charge of services for um, direct service professionals um, for dis, in, you know, intellectual and disability uh, and um, intellectual and developmental disabilities. Mm-hmm. Um, there's so between the Oregon Department of Education and Oregon Health Authority, if those two things were combined and the resources and the funding were accessible to all students, can you imagine? I mean, I can't even think of any needs that could not be met. But I can also think that that might generate one giant cluster. Perhaps, but... But it would be wonderful if it were yeah. on a smaller... But think about a, the, stu- the, the, the schools level. that have health-based, uh, school-based health centers. Yeah. If, it works for them. It certainly does. And so it would seem it would seem more beneficial if, say, because you're with McMinnville, if their health and human services that they received there, that they came in and they were able to satellite with you. But if, if it were on a smaller scale, because I think that once you make something too big of a machine, then you start running into so many problems with it and too many people trying to be cooks trying to do different components of it and everybody saying that they're an expert and trying to take over. But if you have a smaller, right now the, the, the health systems that we have with the schools, the clinics, those are small enough that they're able to, that they're able to do cooperative. The, the, the mental health services that are also lined up for families is also small enough. But I think that if you have something that's just too big, where you're doing a partnership where they're running, um, having one machine here and one machine next to it, and trying to involve maybe even a third machine, you've gotten too big. And so you can kind of lose focus as far as what it is that you're actually doing. And everybody wants to be the engineer who's in charge. True. But let, let, let me, and, and let me, so there was um, a pipe dream that I had at some point that everybody was saying, you know, let's focus on things that are realistic. And I'm just going to use it as an example. Um, I was serving in the disability services advisory council, and I went to a quarterly meeting um, for all the state. And, and I was talking about how the adult foster homes, you have mental health foster homes and you have physical health foster homes and the physical health foster homes are, are not equipped to handle mental health issues most normally, and you have to use physical health funding. And then there's the mental health foster homes that are not usually equipped or trained to handle physical health issues, and you have to use mental health funding. And so basically, people going into foster homes have to figure out which issues are, are the primary issues, and they get those addressed, and everything else goes to the wayside. And so like, um, and so the, the issues, I brought those issues up and finally, you know, they were, they started, um, integrating those two systems. Now they're still two systems and they still run separately, but for the people who have coexisting needs, now they have a liaison from one system on the other, you know, on the other advisory council or whatever you want to call it, Mm -hmm. they have a liaison from this one that goes to over here. And so 
they they communicate, they work together, there's less of a gap in between. And so now if you have a mental health foster home, you can get cross-trained in physical health needs. So like so if somebody has diabetes and need insulin shots and you have to have a nurse come do whatever, right? Or, and you can do the same thing in the opposite direction. Well, you can do the same. My, my thought is if they can do that in that situation, then you could have a liaison that, that, that sits, it understands the workings of the ODE and understands the working of the OHA. And when there are um, individuals or schools or organizations that need to access both of those those resources simultaneously, there's somebody who understands how those integrate. Mm -hmm. Um, Even if it's only one person. Right. And a pivot person like that would be invaluable. Right. And that's what I mean. I don't mean like, let's go, let's put these things, reorganize everybody's stuff and start over and reinvent the wheel. But, but having some kind of a, a tie between those two, so that they're not so completely siloed and separate. Right. There's at least some way to combine those services. Right. And that would be perfect. Yeah. It'd be a night. It would be a perfect storm, I think. Mm-hmm. Because that one that. person, you know, can you imagine if someone like Annie Marges was also, was also um, part of the Oregon Health Authority system? Mm-hmm. And knew and knew how both of those things work and how they mesh together and how they can work for the best interest of those students and families. That would be fantastic. Yeah, I mean that that would be, but there's not somebody like that. But mm-hmm. eventually there will be. I'm determined. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's what they said when I said things about the foster care system. They're like, yeah, okay. You keep dreaming. I'm like, hey, I'm just going to keep speaking my piece and being the, you know, squeaky wheel. <laughs> well, that's how you get things done. Yeah. You know, you really do. Okay. So let's talk about uh, building supplemental and cooperative systems. Because I think that this is where we can segue because you're talking about that already. Yeah. Mm, yes. So um, we talk about the ad- advocacy for equity and funding. Um, I don't know, how would you, because you also have growth mindset in this category, and I'm not sure how you advocate for growth mindset, because I think my belief about growth mindset is that it's something that you can, you can develop. I don't know how you would advocate for that. So what is it that you mean by what, what is it that you mean? Well, when you and I were talking about growth mindset before, mm-hmm. really it comes down to what we were talking about earlier in this podcast and, and, and some of those statements that are inappropriate, you know, that, so that's the opposite of growth mindset. So if you take those statements and you take the opposite of those statements, like, you know, this is just the way it is. It's always been like this and there's nothing right. I can do about mm-hmm. it. Um, and then you empower yourself. Uh, with the knowledge and the skills mm-hmm. to to do something about things that need to be improved, um, to learn and to grow, and hopefully to do that together um, collaboratively as a community. Because it, in the end, you know, we are all, you know, we're all in this together. 
Right. We every, all have a lot of the same needs. And everybody brings their Lego sets of skills together and they exactly. all pitch in and they, because you can't really, you need to have a diverse supply of skills and input in order to have a really well-rounded thing that's going to work for everybody and, and that you can make sure that, and even then you may not hit every single cog on the wheel. Well, right. But, but you have a better yeah. chance. I mean, but at the end, mm -hmm. at the end of the day, if, if you're learning and you're growing. Right. And you're doing it together. Mm -hmm. I mean, what, isn't that what life is about? <laughs> I mean, to me. That, yeah. To make life better for. Learning and growing together. Yeah. Yeah. And to make life better, more enjoyable. Our little and, Eden. Huh? Our little Eden. Our little, right. Or utopia. <laughs> Um, well, you know, there's all, I think too, I think part of what makes an utopia a utopia is that it's not perfect, that there are perfect imperfections, but there are skills to overcome those things. And there's the growth mindset to get past them and to, to try not to keep making the same mistakes over and over again. Right. Or looking at those mistakes and seeing what worked and what didn't work and then. Right jumping on those and then it's it's kind of like a science experiment i mean that's pretty much what you do with science isn't it i mean we're on an adventure exactly <laughs> exactly experimentation so, adventure <laughs> yeah yeah i mean if you read davis obel and her book on longitude you know look at what they went through in order to get there um so tell me about building supplemental and cooperative systems because you're talking about two, and I love this idea of what you have, this vision of a new program that you have. Do you mind talking about that? Oh, not at all. Because so, I think I think it's a fantastic model. We we would love for it to be a, a three year plan, but it's I mean it, it might be more like a five year plan, but we're hoping, mm -hmm. um, you know, we can have the rosy the rosy glasses on for the three year plan. It could um, be but, less than that too. <laughs> So basically, if you can imagine that you had four buildings um, and then a, a kind of surrounding each other and then one right in the middle of all four, right? So there's mm -hmm. one building in the middle. There's four buildings on each side of that, mm -hmm. right? The one in the middle, um, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to end with the one in the middle. So the one, let's, let's go with building one would be a building for uh, students, um, a, a boarding school, but the boarding would be in building two, obviously, but the school would be in, in building one, okay. right, for students. Um, and the housing for those students would be in building two, and I'll explain why they might need housing in a few minutes. So then you have building three, that is a, a recovery community for mental health, for trauma, for addiction, for coexisting conditions, um, mm -hmm. for parents of those students. And then building four is housing for those parents, right? And now you ask, like, you might wonder, well, why are the students and the parents living and going to their programs separately? Well, that's where the fifth one comes in. The fifth building in the middle 
is for, um, you know, a lot of parents are separated from their kids. The kids are put into foster care um, while the parents are going through their programs and trying to rebuild their life. And in the meantime, everybody is traumatized by that separation. Mm -hmm. Then you have to deal with the trauma. And the trauma itself can make it very difficult to get past if there's addictions. Um, so it's just a kind of a, a, a vicious negative downward spiral in a lot of situations that doesn't get better for most people. Right. Um, and so how do we address that? So what if you could have supervised visitation without separating the families completely? Right. Mm -hmm. So so you have that building in the middle where people come together, they have breakfast, lunch and dinner. They can, um, they have movie nights, they have game nights, they have classes on how, on parenting classes and communication classes and, um, and relationship counseling and family counseling and all those things that the families need, family stabilization services, all those mm -hmm. skills, they learn how to to be healthy, to, they learn how to, what's, what, what is codependency and what is enabling and what are boundaries and what are healthy boundaries, you know, and, and how to, uh, how to, how to compromise all those things that frankly, I wish I had learned growing up mm -hmm. <laughs> and it would have made my life way better. It would make anybody's life better. But in that situation, the, then you would have the the DHS trained supervisors mm -hmm. so they can come into that area and the, and the kids can come into the area, the parents can come into the area and they're automatically being supervised. So there you go, supervised visitation and you don't have to go anywhere besides through a door from your home to see your kid or now, through a door to go see your parent. Now, are the parents and are the students allowed to work? I would, well, I think that would probably be an end a case by case uh, assessment if they're, if they're in a place in their healing and their recovery where working would be good for their program, then I don't see why there wouldn't be an opportunity to do that. And there probably would be plenty of things to do on, to make money on the job. I mean, on, on site mm -hmm. while you're in the program. Cause I mean, the, be the best situations you can see that work the best in you know, that are out there right now, you take like the, the homeless camps that not the tiny home kind of communities that they have mm -hmm. made for, for homeless individuals. And they each have uh, a job that they do to contribute to their, to their community. Right. And it, and it helps build a sense of self-worth and purpose and all the things that as human beings, we need to, to live and grow and, enjoy any kind of lot, any kind of moments in life, we have to have those things. And then at some point, do they transition to outpatient in a sense? Yes. Yeah, so then there would of... be transitional services. So then there might, maybe there might be um, another, another location where they could maybe go live with their families and have house parents, but they can live with their kids and, and have, even, you know, those situations where you have, um, you have nuclear families and then you have a kind of a combined area, but you have, you have people that are there in case, you know, things start falling apart and the, it gets to be too overwhelming. And the parent says, I don't know if I can 
handle all this responsibility or whatever, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and I need some support. And instead of, instead of judging somebody for just being human, um, that we had the transitional services can step in and say, Hey, you know what? I'm up here. I have been where you are. I know what that dark place feels like. I'm not judging you. Let me just, let me just be here for you. And let me, let's, let's get your kids taken care of while you and I take a walk. Let's, let's, let's talk about this. You know, Mm -hmm. we don't, we don't have to throw everything, all the stuff we've, you know, all the, all the progress we've made away um, because we're having, we just, we just need a break. You need a, you need some respite. Right. And then, then you can decide what you want to do from there, but let's take a break first. <laughs> it sounds absolutely tran- transformative. I, I believe it would be. I do believe that. And I think the most of the part, so my husband actually works at a, um, an organization that um, provides services for people experiencing addiction. Mm-hmm. Um, he is actually... A certified recovery mentor and we talk about this a lot and that is a lot of times people want to put a band-aid on the issues um and there a lot of funding goes into those band-aid band-aids yeah. um but we don't actually take the band-aid off and look at the wound and treat the wound under the band-aid and you know see like there's like maybe there's stuff buried into the wound. We need to kind of get out of there and clean it and, and work on it first and then put the bandaid on there. And mm-hmm. then the bandaid will actually do something because there's not something under there that's still festering. Well, it feels as though what they want to do is pretty superficial without getting in there and actually cleaning the wound. Right. And that's and, temporary. It's and not putting something permanent. in there so that, so that it can actually heal. So the person can be whole again. Right. So. Whole. And that is the main thing. That's why Fifth Corner Academy actually is we have the whole wellness needs model. Mm-hmm. And it, it's a, it's about, it's based, it's expanded from the, the Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Um, but basically, if you think of it as like, if you had a, a pyramid and no, I'm not talking about anything religious or anything like that, but just like think about a, the, the shape of a pyramid and think about the bottom square right? Mm-hmm. As the, the, the base self, right? Then you have the corners, which are the corners of wellness needs. Um, the basics want the basic ones connected, connected to basic survival. So you have the social, emotional, physical, and mental, uh, wellness needs mm-hmm. that are those four corners at the bottom. Right. So right. then if you can meet those basic needs, um, and my son says it best, actually, it's a Minecraft reference. If you can, I'll tell you that in a second, but if you can meet those basic needs, you start rising up those slopes um, with personal growth and you can actually, you know, the fifth corner mm-hmm. is the is the corner at the top the of the pyramid, the peak, the apex, the connection to your true self and beyond the self if you have that uh, inclination. Um, so it can be um, spiritual awareness, but when we say spiritual health and spiritual wellness and spiritual needs, we're talking about the connection to the self and potentially beyond the self with that inclination. So, mm-hmm. but the true self, this is the base self. The apex is the true self, Got it. right? Without all of the defense mechanisms that we employ when we are living in survivor mode. 
right. as human beings, as mm -hmm. every human being, not just ones that are experiencing so-called mental health challenges. We're, they're just, these are just human being right. um, and, experiences. And, and for many of us, those are the students that we deal with on a daily basis. Absolutely. As well as their families at home, because it's sort of a reinfection every time that they go back through those doors because the parents, there's something going on with them and they, you know, it, it's a cyclical kind of, whoops. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Research has proven that, that it's a cycle. Yeah. And it's generation after generation after generation. So if we know that this is going on and we know it's repeating itself every generation, mm -hmm. then obviously what we've been doing is not working. I mean, right. it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure that one out, right? What we're doing is not working. So what would work? And right. that's the growth mindset that we're talking about. Okay, so exactly. if this is not working, let's put our heads together. Let's figure out why isn't it working and what would work. Mm -hmm. And if, if we figure out what would work, then how could we make that happen if we work together instead of instead of worrying about, um, you know, like the, what do you call that? Um, competition mindset. It, that's just, yeah. honestly, that's, that has no place in our world anymore. Well, I think competition is actually good because what it does is it makes us want to do things better. And if oh, we right. see like, people, I mean, we can work with people, but there's always, if you, do, if you don't feel as though you're competing with somebody, then sometimes there's really, for some people, there's no need to do that. Well, maybe. So I, I, think, I feel like, you know, you I don't want to discount against that. your, 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 if I'm better, a better person than I, uh, today than I was yesterday, then I was competing against somebody. Right. But and, what I'm talking about is the kind of, the kind of competition that takes priority. Like, so basically I don't want to send you to this person over here that, I know this therapist will exactly meet your needs, but I don't want to send you to her because I want your money. See, I think when you when you conflate ego with competition, that's where you run into the problem. Fair point. Fair but point. If you, because you should not, when we're dealing with children, we should not be doing that. We should take our ego out of the equation. I know too many people who are so so into their ego and how much they believe that they are affecting rather than dealing with and working on with the kid it's more about them than it is the kid <laughs> okay okay i'm gonna wrap it up and it was fantastic having you and i want to thank you so much and if people are heading off to St. Louis around the 19th of October for the National Alternative Education Association Conference, they will catch you, they will catch Annie Marges, and you will also be able to listen to Dr. Letitia Woodley, who's one of the big keynote speakers. And oh, you'll love her. You will. I just wish that I could go. So I will say thank you and to all of our listeners. We will see you next week. Check the show notes. We have a lot more down there for you. And adios.